just stay creative. Like, don't worry about what everyone else is doing and stay curious because I feel like if I was coming up now and I have access to all this music and all these algorithms are throwing stuff at me, I would definitely make sure to like look outside of that for stuff that's falling in between the cracks and then just have fun with it and find some like-minded individuals to work with and do it. Back once again, I feel like it's been so long. It's only been two weeks. Feels like it's been two years. I've needed this. I need to talk to my friends. I've been so busy. But welcome back. This is the podcast where we are dedicated to empowering creative professionals like you and I and my friends. And I interview one of my friends every week or as often as I can. We got a nice little stack right now. I needed those two weeks because we stacked up some interviews, got some good ones coming up. And today is one of them. It's an interview with my guy, Trackademics. If you're from the Bay Area, you've heard the name. Trackademics is the man behind one of the biggest Bay Area remix anthems ever, the Tell Me When To Go remix. If you were in the club around 06, man, I might be getting my ears all mixed up because I'm old. But if you were around in the club during the peak of the hyphy era, when Tell Me When To Go was ringing off in the Bay Area, you had to play the remix. And I, I bring that up in our interview let the old guys talk a little bit let us reminisce let's talk about our glory years is that okay well we get into that a little bit later but also in some personal updates me and john reyes have signed to the majors that's right well i think it's kind of a major we're still independent i guess it would be the equivalent of us signing to fondulum records or like raucous or hyrule imperium Okay, more hip-hop talk. But we have signed a deal, I guess I could talk about it now, to a company called Connected Podcasts, the same network that publishes Logic's podcast. Now, I know that's been getting a lot of news lately, amongst others. And I actually caught up with Justin, who connected all of us. You may remember Justin from the episode, what, episode, what, 11, 10, something like that. Staring at the ceiling fan, trying to catch that feeling off instrumental. But he's, he manages Logic and he introduced me to connect the podcast. So it's cool. It's a developmental deal. We're not making any money yet, but now we got to take this serious. So I'm asking for help, guys. I need your help. Okay. I need you to follow the podcast on all major streaming platforms. Okay. If you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you're on what else? Stitcher. Is Stitcher one? I've heard the name Stitcher. We're everywhere, whatever. Follow on one, follow on all, okay? That's first step. Then I need you to rank us five stars, okay? If you want to do four stars, go ahead, okay? If you want to do anything lower, just don't even bother. Do me that favor. Then you got to comment. You got to say, Rel's funny. Rel, so much insight. John Reyes is ill. I made a million dollars listening to this podcast. Whatever. Clickbait. Comment clickbait comments so something that'll get people to listen you know get them hooked and then we feed them that product and then third thing i really need guys i need you to leave some voicemails call this number 646-926-3885 
leave a voicemail something a question give some knowledge anything i can respond to okay i need my folks to do it first before because no one else is going to do it until my folks start doing it so hit me up that number again 646-926-3885 and guess what you're going to get a book joe conzo's 50 years of hip-hop i have gotten blessings from joe conzo himself that'll just show up to your front door just for calling the number and leaving a voicemail but it's got to be good it's got to be a voicemail i could use tell me about your creative journey give some insight to the folks listening what were some resources that helped you or ask a question maybe you're a video editor and you got stuck at a certain part and i can get the answer for you if i don't have the answer i'll find the answer all right so hit the voicemail welcome to the rel and friends podcast let's get into it we're back home back in nyc back on the east man i missed california so much as you uh may know i was in la for a week we were filming a lot of exciting stuff with the uh, rory amal podcast i can't talk about it too much but um i will say this i was hanging out with a lot of cool people uh very talented um mcs uh rappers musicians singers um man i felt so honored to be there and i shot some stuff that looked really cool everybody was so excited great time i can't wait to share more once that's complete but how have you been how are things on your end are you happy are you sad are you excited we are rounding out the second month of 2024 and things are looking good. I mean, really, things are looking more busy. Is it bad that I'm thinking about that more than the positive? I guess so. I should be grateful. I should be thankful. But man, I'm tired. But things are on schedule, I guess. You're right. That's part of the path. You got to remember. You got to remind yourself as things get tough. This is what you always wanted, right? On that note, time for some news. I just ran into this article on Hollywood Reporter. They recently interviewed Tyler Perry, the movie mogul himself. He had plans on an $800 million expansion to his studio in Atlanta. But he apparently put that on hold due to AI technology. Georgia's film industry is booming, but now one area filmmaker, an actor, is putting his $800 million expansion plans on hold. Tyler Perry tells The Hollywood Reporter that he is pressing pause because of the rapid rise of artificial intelligence. So Perry planned to build about 12 sound stages. He was going to add these to his Atlanta studio. And in the interview, he says seeing the capabilities of OpenAI's newest tool called Sora made him rethink his need for physical filming locations. Sora can apparently make realistic videos from short text prompts. Perry is also raising the alarm about the impact of AI here. He believes it will touch every corner of the film industry, causing job loss. He says that everyone should take in the industry, should take this seriously and talk to Congress about moving this forward. Okay, so... If you guys have been listening to all the episodes, you know one of the last questions I ask is, AI, do you fear it or do you use it? This is an example of using it, but also 
being very terrified of it. So he's saving $800 million, putting that on hold, because he's now utilizing AI technology instead. Now, I don't know if he invested money in AI technology, but basically he didn't have to add an investment into his production process because of this new technology. If you're him, that's exciting. That's great. You get to do more with less. But as a worker, as a creative professional, as us, those are potential jobs lost. And there could even be additional losses in jobs because of that, because you might be saving even more money on top of that. So I'm fearing it, guys. I'm kind of fearing it. Uh, but let's figure out how to use it more because if we don't use it, they will, right? Let's get into more depressing news. How about that? So there's even more loss of jobs. Apparently Vice recently stopped posting to their site and they had a ton of layoffs. OK Player lays off a ton of people, their whole editorial staff. I think that was announced a couple weeks ago and they just announced their 25 years of OK Player. Who knows where that's going? And then BuzzFeed recently sold Complex. Complex Networks, who sold for $300 million at one point, and then they sold again and again, and that number kept dropping. So it's definitely a changing climate right now. For me, those are sites I used to frequent pretty often. The last era of hip-hop that I was super into was the blog era, and it seems with every new year, that era is slowly like... I mean, it's pretty much done now. It's done. It's been done. But this is like the nail in the coffin right here. So also makes me nervous. It's a changing landscape. But I have always been saying that it's no longer about media outlets. It's more about direct-to-consumer content now. So these artists, these influencers, these brands that were once using these sites to market themselves, they are now building their own media teams and delivering them straight to consumer. There's no middlemen anymore. You don't need that. Welcome to the first episode of our podcast. Oh yeah. I'm obviously your host, Loyati. Hey guys, it's Dua here. Welcome to our third episode of our summer series of Dua Lipa at Your Service. Hello, welcome to a very special edition of Club Shay Shay. I am your host, Shannon Sharp. I'm also the proprietor of Club Shay Shay. If you're not doing that already, you might be a little bit behind, but it's not too late. I mean, I'm just now getting in the game with this. So that being said, if you are an artist, if you're a brand focused not only on building the business, but also integrating your own content strategy, your own team, use the AI. Um, yeah, let's get it, man. Let's get it. Uh, these are very changing times. Uh, hit me up if you need some some help, some brainstorm sessions. I'm always down. Rail.mov. You can hit up the company IG at artoftstorytelling.co and hit up Stank Palmer. Hit up John Reyes, Stank Palmer on all major platforms. All right, let's get into some positive stuff. Let's get into this fun interview with my guy Trackademics right now. Trackademics, what is your favorite rap line? Oh. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> you know, that's probably one of the hardest things to 
It's funny. I'm more producer based. It's not <laughs> a surprise. Spot. <laughs> Go ahead. This is hilarious, and I'm bad. At, I'm really bad at remembering lyrics, but it's got to be like. What was mm-hmm. what did CeeLo say in Soul Food? Fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, and collard beans. Too big for my jeans. Just because the way it flows. I can't even say it right, but it's just yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. I always laugh at it. But like, I, yeah. yeah I, that's a good one. Off the top, I have no idea. I'm sure there's yeah, some, we'll, some... We'll go with that one. Some non-Rake yeah, we'll album, one. something Mac Mall said. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch. <laughs> a heap of help on the fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, and collard greens. Too big for my jeans. I like to start every show with a memory that I have with my friends. I've seen you everywhere from like South by Southwest to like just the party scene. But the first one that pops up was when I was doing Distortion Aesthetic. We were interviewing a young Mr. Fab in West Oakland in his basement and in walks in Trackademics, man. And you guys were, you were working on his first album. And then as we started talking, we realized I knew a lot of your friends that were going to SF State because I, I met Mike Baker and Wiz and Tap 10 shortly before I met you. So that was dope because a lot of my different worlds were colliding at that point. Do you remember much about like that era? Like what was going on in your world at that time? Oh yeah, it's almost like yesterday. So I went to USF, right? I was the only one who didn't go to SF State out of the folks who went to school out here. So I'd be at SF State, you know, going to the hip hop class with them and just hanging out. But yeah, as far as like that late 2003, 2004 era. So I had graduated from USF and was like really unsure about what I was going to do. You know, I studied business and back then we graduated during another recession. And so like jobs were crazy. I remember during that time, I ended up working at FedEx overnight and was just like grinding on that. And then Wiz, who was at Youth Radio, he helped me get a job at Youth Radio in the training. And so then we were kind of putting things together on that end. Like, okay, now we have more time to work on music stuff. And during that time, I met Mr. Fab and I met him at one of those New Bay showcases. Back in the day, it was like EA Ski and Balance and Frontline and Mr. Fab, you know, they were doing the freestyle battles. I went to one of the showcases and met Mr. Fab and gave him a CD. I gave everybody a CD, but he was the one that called me back. One day on his way to, I think it was Summer Jam that year, he called me and was like, yo, these are fire. We got to hook up. And then for a year straight after that, that was like probably late 2003. For a year straight, I would pick him up like three times a week from his house in the north. And we go around to different studios, we hang out, we do everything. And I was really like just learning a lot, like learning who was out here. We did a lot of work for Fizz at the time when they were in Oakland Then they were bouncing around. I feel like I had just started really figuring out how to make beats too. I was making them all through college, but didn't really play them for people. I played them for like Wiz and Tap and Mike and all, all the crew, but... Other than that, I wasn't really playing beats for people. And I was actually doing remixes because I'm pretty introverted, not necessarily antisocial, but, you know, like I wasn't out there like who's trying to jump on these beats. So I was like taking acapellas and showcasing my beats that way. But, yeah, that early time, like it was definitely like working with Mr. Fab in different studios, doing features with him, getting tracks on different folks while putting his album Son of the Pimp to together and it's actually it was the second album he had his first album nigga latin and then son of a pimp oh that's right we were working on yep yep you worked on son of a pimp man that was such a memorable time and like a time that i kind of 
took for granted. It was really in the middle of the New Bay movement when kind of like Bay Area was starting to get seen again for the first time after that long drought. And it was really up for grabs, man. Anyone that wanted to participate could. And I think with Distortion and Static, we really grabbed a hold of that, and you did too. So, okay, a question I'd like to ask in the beginning is, what do you do creatively? And then also, like, professionally, what do you do? Okay. So, I mean, I still make music all the time. I think my vaults are too big. There's too much music that I have not dropped. You know, I've done it professionally for a long time. I went to, to L.A. for five years and was doing that stuff down there, working with Kamaya, working with YG and a lot of different folks. I'm still doing a lot of remixes. Like I did some for the homie Drew Bird for Coachella last year that, yeah, that they played for Donovan's Yard at Coachella. And like, I've got a lot of that stuff popping, uh, working on projects myself. Been trying to scale back, doing a lot of stuff with the homie Lyrics Born. Um, So creatively, it's always happening. Also trying to get 108K, honor roll, brother 108K, trying to get something together with him. And then professionally, I mean, same thing. I'm, I feel like I've been a mercenary for my whole creative life. So I'm like doing some podcast work and also, you know, scoring for podcasts. I did the intro song for this Kara Swisher podcast. She's like a big tech reporter for Vox Media. And I've also, so there's two things. I did the, the documentary when we were hyphy. I was a talking head in that documentary, but also I scored the documentary too. So me along with the director, did some music for the documentary. So that was a great experience just because I love the sound. And like, one thing I hate about film and TV is when they say it's a certain time period and then everything doesn't either look or oh, sound man. like the time. It's like, I'm a stickler That's for That's worse. Yeah, it kills <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. Like just the little yeah, thing. Yeah. Whenever I can go back to like a specific era and like, you know, make that music, it's always fun. So I did that documentary and it came out in 2022. And then... The homie Pendarvis Harshaw, who's a reporter for KQED, he has his Right Nowish podcast. He did a whole series called Hypey Kids Got Trauma. And that was a dope series. He was talking about the youth during the hypey generation and just the things that were going on and how, you know, one part of it is really about all the music and the the, the commodification of the hypey, but then like what was going on with the people, you know, in the streets. And so with that podcast, I scored the whole podcast and mixed and mastered and, yeah, edited the whole thing. So that was dope, a great dope. yeah, it was a great time. Man, I got to check that out. I've heard a lot of good things about it. The title itself already drew me in. I just got to find time to check it out. But let me rewind. Can you just tell me where you're from and, like, early memories of just hip-hop culture? Like, what got you into it? I'm born and raised in Alameda, so... If you're from the Bay, you know, it's right next to Oakland, but it's an island city right next to Oakland. And so I was born in Alameda and anyone knows about Alameda, it's real chill. It's like the opposite of Oakland. You know, back in the day, it was a lot of redlining. So it was hardly any black folks. There was like one section for black folks on the west side, but I lived on the east side. And my dad's family's from here. And they were actually the first Filipino family to live in Alameda. And so like growing up here, it was very safe, very chill. You know, I was really bored, a lot of bike riding growing up. <laughs> and I mean, I guess that's where I started to get into music, though. Like my mom, she took me to after school music lessons to play the saxophone. And yeah, that's kind of how I started getting into music. And really, when it came to middle school and high school, I was looking for like cultural connection. Right. You know, being one of the only few black kids out here, black mixed, 
you know, just like I see all these black folks on the radio, but I don't really have any friends like that out where I'm living. And that was my connection was the music. And then when I met Mike Baker in high school, we clicked up and started rapping like right before high school, before ninth grade. And then so I kind of dove straight in. And during those early times, you know, it's during like Cameo, like what, Chewy and Rosary on the radio and like E-40 was real big. Like it was that the mid 90s. So like CMC, like I was into a lot of Bay Area rap, like very much. And I'm super fortunate that our region really supported Bay Area rap at that time. Cause still my favorite music, and that's kind of what I gravitated to. Mac Mall was my favorite. Like when I heard Illegal Business, that album was just like just musically, like the way Kyrie produced it, but also just his. You know, it's a few people I feel like who were born to rap. It's like him, like Black Thought, like it's certain people like Nas. When you listen, you're just like, oh, you could just rap, just talk and rap. But he was one of those people. Of course, E40 was like the the foray into the big rap here. Too Short, of course, like Dangerous Islands and Dangerous Crew, and a lot of Oakland rap. So Loonies were popping in, like their first album. When did Honor Roll must sing? The seed of it comes from us going to youth radio. So at the time, youth radio is a nonprofit in Berkeley helping kids learn about media broadcasting. We're all interested in like music, media broadcasts, and all that. And that's where I met Wiz. Tap was in my initial class. Me, Mike, we went there at the same time with our other homie, Mox, and we kind of all clicked up right there. So it's like a core of us. That's during high school. I think Wiz was freshman in college. So through college, we started making music more. And after we graduated, I think it was around 2004 or 2005, really, we decided to name it the honor roll. You know, Wiz was trying to run the master plan, you know, like he does, and put it together. And SF State had so many folks like y'all doing Distortion Static and like folks in the scene. And so, like, I've always felt like a little bit of an outsider. Like, oh, I got to come in. Like, that's the cool school, <laughs> you know, right, 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 right. <laughs> and meet everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, spend your yeah. there, everybody. <laughs> That was a crazy generation of folks, man, when I'm looking back. I came from the 707. I, I was went to high school in Vacaville, and it was the same thing. Like, SF State, like, if you're in the Bay Area and you want to network with the hip-hop scene, you had to go to SF State, man. Like, and that, that's why I went there, you know. It wasn't even about, like, academics or anything. It was like, I just want to meet the hip-hop heads, you know what I mean? Yeah, I found that <laughs> It was that a out crazy late. time. I found that out later, but I was like, okay. All your folks were there, though. Yeah, SF State was cool. Okay, I want to get more into your career, but first, let me jump into my first segment. It's called For the Love of Money. It's a segment that I hope to help encourage transparency around money talk for creative professionals. So you have experience in scoring, podcasting, TV, remixes, even placements. Like, where's the money at and where is the areas where it's like there might not be money, but it's a good look. So you want to get in there. You know what I mean? Like, is there any way you could break that down for maybe someone young coming Mm -hmm. up in the game? Yeah, it's a jungle out there, first off. Yeah. I think one of the most important things, first off, when trying to monetize your craft is figuring out like what kind of artist you are. Like, I love the roots. And, you know, Scott Storch was part of the roots, right, back in the day. And he was like, Questlove would always be like, yeah, he would have like beats just ready to go. Like, whatever kind of beat you need or whatever, right? And so he was like one of those, like, I got beats for any situation. If you're that type of producer that's so prolific, you know, that's one type. Are you or are you like someone who likes to craft a specific sound, you know, and you might not be as fast or whatever. 
you know, and it's hard trying to figure out, like, do you like to collaborate a lot or are you like more of a solitary mind? People have the different inclinations. I really think taking stock of who you are is one of the most important things. I say that because I, I think about it in retrospect, like, oh, I might have gone this way, but then like I'm more suited to go this way. As far as the money in music, it's funny. I was just looking at Hit Boy talking about the the record companies not paying him recently. So, I mean, off top, that's one of the hardest grinds is trying to get money out of a, like a major label artist or a smaller artist on a major. That's always a hard route to go because you got to make it through all these stages. You got to get the record, cut the record on the artist, then have it make it past their management, make it past the A&R team, enough where they're actually going to put it out. And then when it finally gets put out, you got to like make sure your paperwork is in order so they can pay you. And then when they pay you, it's going to be like six months out. And then you got to make sure your posting is in order for like your performance royalties and all that. So to back it up, the places that I've gotten steady money is definitely registering my songs for my performance royalties, like being my ASCAP, you know, um, that's always been a good thing. A lot of the music early on was produced primarily by me, just one person. So I'd always made things more simple because if you split the song into 200% portions, you know, the song and the, like the publishing or whatever, like I'd get at least half of that. Okay. So you said performance royalty. So this is if an artist performs it or if it gets played on the radio or something like that? Well, yeah, radio in other countries because uh, the radio in America does not give performance royalties because the way it was set up was more like promotions for record companies. It's a little loophole that's still horrible. But yeah, I've been part of BMI for a long time and you break down, they show you all the different places your record was played and performed. You get fractions of a penny on that. And while it's not that much, it adds up sometimes. And so there's that, but I'd say before that, syncs are really good. So syncing is where a lot of the money is. That's getting your music in like TV and film. And so like, I've done a little pivot to that a little bit more. I've had music in like The Shy. I've had stuff on HBO. I've had stuff in the movie Magic Mike. My first movie I ever had stuff in was Fruitvale Station, which was dope because it's a Bay Area Barry music and was that the Tamuna Go remix? No, that was Halo Mama by Mr. Fab, the Jacka, and Johnny Cash. Rest in peace. So that was dope because A Fruitville actually is my station. <laughs> and you know, rest in peace, Oscar Grady and having stuff in that movie and just different films. Enough to like have an IMDB now. So I've worked on different projects and score short films, documentaries, all that. So that's always good because Music wise, that's like if you have the ear to put music to like visuals, that's always great because the film industry has a little bit more of a an infrastructure so you can get paid. There's budgets to make films. Studios have budgets or even the production company that's making it has a budget. You know, they don't just get that for free. Whereas in the music industry, it's a little bit more of the Wild West. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Okay, yeah, thank you for providing the insight because I know for a musician it's hard to make a living out of it, but that provides some context. I did mention the Tell Me When to Go remix. That's one that really sticks out to me and the Bay Area. A lot of memories with that as well. I remember at the height of the Bay Area, any club you go to in the Bay, if you were doing an Ivy set, you had to play the remix. Even more than the original, man, you had to play the original, I mean, the remix produced by Trichodemics, man. So let me ask you this. Did you make any money off of that or was just was that just like an exposure sort of thing? Like you were just throwing out remixes? Right. 
As far as the specific song remix, I've never made money off of that because it was an unofficial remix. The way I made it was I went to B-Side Records at the time. It was not there anymore. The day the single came out, I bought it on vinyl and went to the studio I had at the time and made it that night. I went to Meba after that, bought the record that ended up being the sample, made it that night, right? Put it on MySpace. So it never was officially dropped. I had spoke to E-40 through Mr. Fab back when it came out, and he said something like, that go, nephew, or something like that, right? <laughs> other than, uh, but other than that, like, monetarily, like when college radio stations or when other radio stations would play it, they would just say, tell me where to go. So I made Lil John a little bit more money. No, uh, oh, um, crazy. Of course. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean... So even it, when it, it got paid, radio play... Yeah, but probably the smartest thing I've done in my career was the first version didn't say Trackademics in it. And I gave that out to some kids. And I was like, wait, I got to put my tag in this. And I didn't have a tag. So I just like, Trackademics, put that in there. And right before the drop, so that I at least get some credit. Because, you know, you got to hear it. That's why I love, you know, rap tags and rap music. It's important. Culture moves fast. You got to put it in there. You know, so... That's how I got paid through shows, gigs, other opportunities. Exactly. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so during this whole journey leading to where you are today, what are like some challenges as a producer, even specifically in the Bay Area, just trying to get placements, trying to figure out where you fit in, trying to figure out how to make money out of this? What were some challenges that you faced that you can speak on? Oh, I mean, I, I feel like I've had a lot of challenges. A lot of them are internal, trying to figure out what direction I want to go. Like, for folks that know me, know I've made dance music, I've made rap music, I've made R&B, like all these things. And my personal struggle is always trying to figure out, like, what do the people want from me? And then, like, without realizing, like, oh, you just need to just, you know, all gas, no brakes and put it out. And I have done that, but there's a way I could have done it more. Just trust, like, oh, if you build it, they'll listen to it, whatever. But as far as a producer trying to figure it out, it's just really figuring out this is all of a business. It's all 100% of business. So you're not in the creative department, but you also need to like market. You also need to like do your accounting. And if it's not you doing it, you need to have some help doing it. But like you have to look at it from A to Z. And someone like me who's really introverted or not liking to like deal with a lot of people. Like I try to do it all myself, but there's no possible way that you could do it all yourself. Right. So having folks help you and take you along the way, I think that's one of the most important things because there are people who've been doing it forever who will just show you what to do and where to go if you have the talent and they can clearly see like, oh, yeah, this is going to be something. Let me help this person out and like show them to the money. Like what areas specifically do you reach out for help? I mean, when I say I've done everything, I mean, I've done everything, everything from artwork to mixing and mastering my own records. So those areas definitely reaching out for help, but also like folks who are, you know, in record promotions or like tour stuff, like that's really important. Like, how do you get your music? Because that's another income stream that is really important is playing live in front of people. Me as a producer, I kind of did it backwards. I started DJing after I was started producing. And so the DJ community, really important because that's who gets your music out there, grassroots. And so like, I'm basically trying to service DJs with remixes or with music over the years. 
And that's definitely been helpful. But yeah, like any anything that's in a business, you got to reach out for because ideally, and it's not always the case, but what you do best, you want to do the most and have other people take the slack from the other things. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And then how was the move to L.A. and why'd you move back to the Bay? Yeah, so L.A. is dope. I love L.A. L.A., especially from music, it's a dope music town. Like, Just from a fan perspective, you go there and there's like a concert every night or something going on that has to do with the culture because it's such a, a magnet for the media and for the entertainment industry. So there's always dope stuff you can get into. People are really making it happen out there. On the music scene, you can basically get into anything you want to. I think it's funny, like the biggest current example is Andre 3000. Like who would have known, you know, whatever, he just moved to Venice and then fall in with some folks and make have a whole resurgence in another arena. But I think the thing is, there's so much talent everywhere and there's so many opportunities to showcase it. And so LA was dope because if you wanted to have a session every night, you could with different folks if you're moving like that. When I went down... You know, I was working with Kamaya a lot. And so me and a 108K were in that ecosystem of like the Interscope and like working with YG and Kamaya and like a lot of 400, you know, went back in like the 2017, 2018, 2019. And mm-hmm. that was a crazy ride. It's very interesting, like watching the side of the folks who have money. You know, at that time, I mean, it was already YG's like the biggest young West Coast rapper. At the time, when we were working with him and Mustard, being in the studio with Mustard and co-producing beats. And what I learned, I was like, oh, because I'm more of a like do-it-all-yourself type person. It's just, I'm a Capricorn. I'm like, we work hard and we just like, let's just do it. Just work hard. But I see folks working really smart in ways like, oh, they're working like business people. Where it's like, I don't have to do all the heavy lifting. I can like produce the track in a classical sense, like sit back, like, oh yeah, we're going to grab these beats from these beat makers over here and get so-and-so to play on it. And like, I like how he does his drums. Everything gets pieced up at a certain point. So at that level of the music game, it's not always about like so-and-so produced the one beat, you know? And so it it is very interesting how that breaks down. But then also economically, you're like, okay, they're buying people out. These people aren't getting publishing. And so on that side, it's just really interesting And I realized it wasn't for me at that level. Now, community-wise, a lot of dope artists, you know, that I I met and were cool with. And just like in the Bay Area where you can work with local rappers, you can do it out in L.A. and really make some dope things happen. And singers as well, yeah. Dope word. So so when you were in the studio with those big names, were you like collaborating and and assisting in songs like throwing out maybe you threw some drums or something were you were you helping out with anything like that yeah i mean all of it i realized we were there really to like bring ideas i was like oh, okay once you get to a certain level as an artist there are people i mean and it, it happens at more independent levels as well like in song camps and all that people really parse out like who has the the dope idea and then who has the dope execution of the idea and so I know a lot of times we're playing beats, they'd be listening and like, oh, that's a dope idea. And then like necessarily wouldn't be your beat. That would be the finished project, but the idea of your beat gave them something. So I, and I found So they would feelings. take that and like replay it or something? Sometimes. Like I'd have mixed feelings about it because it's like basically like you wouldn't have this if I wasn't here and then they don't necessarily pay you. So it's like I learned a lot about like 
how to covet certain ideas and really make sure that you are in the situation. Because I will say one of the other ways to that you really only make money in the industry is like a lot of people come up with the people they came up with. It's not a lot of crossing over in teams. Like if you produce for this person, it's hard to jump over into like another camp of artists or like whatever team they have. It, a lot of people so are like, clickish. very clickish. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and granted, I didn't feel held back by that at all. Like if you push your issue, you're going to get in. You definitely have to like push your issue. But um, people are inclined to work with who they know already. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah, okay. That, there's a question I like to ask everyone in the creative field, major versus independent. And so you've had experience releasing music independently and seeing the back ends of the major label. So part one of that question is, which do you prefer? Do you prefer working on music independently or through a major label? I definitely prefer working on it independently just because there's a lot less checks you have to go through. But I would actually say that they are two different animals, right? I appreciate working on like bigger projects where there are more cooks in the kitchen sometimes because they may bring things that I just wasn't thinking about, you know, and take the the idea I had to another level. So that's really dope, which can also happen independently. I think when we're, we're talking about the release of the music and like how the music comes out, no matter how it happens, it really doesn't matter how it is. Once it's out, it's the visibility of it, right? And if it has a lot of visibility, like the back end is just way better. And that can happen major or independent. If you have an independent team, like, you know, someone who's dedicated to working at Syncs and they have good relationships with people at different studios and get your song in a movie, you can see just as much money through that than if you would if you had uh, a song released on a major and it was getting played everywhere or, you know, synced that way. I think the most important thing is a personal hands-on approach to like working the song and just going through the avenues that you have at your disposal instead of like trying to like reach for so-and-so who has no connection to you. Like you can always do that, but it's like building rapport in a network folk always works better and you can do that independently or in a major but like a lot of folks who work on independent projects are like invested somehow an independent project yeah so okay so how about like a full-on trackademics album which is your face your production um maybe you're rapping on it or um with some features or whatever how would you prefer to work on it and, and release it would you choose an independent route or would you go through a major label I'd still go independent route. I'd piece it up, right? Like, I'm very independent, very Bay Area. Work with the folks that I know can deliver what I want, but then also make sure that I'm able to, like, work with folks that can elevate the project in a way that I might not have been able to before. So being smarter now, because bu- either way you need a budget, right? Either way you need some type of budget for mixing, mastering, like, paying features, I like to do swaps. The one thing I do appreciate being a producer that can produce any anything is that like I can swap beats and production for features. And that's an important thing because most of the folks I know who work are working, you know, on favors, but uh, if they know each other, because everyone's just trying to make the best song and make it pop. So there's no upfront money necessarily. Everything is divided on the back end. But the folks who are really cool, they're always working together to just see if we can make something that works. Because 
you're not trying to get money out of an empty bag. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to tax the peers like that, you know? But if there's a situation where, you know, someone has a bag, you're like, oh, yeah, it's equity. It's fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, word. Okay, so my second segment I want to jump into, it's called Scope Creeps. So a scope creep is a term we use to describe when a client's expectations or deliverables increase over time without any conversation about money or time compensation. Um, have you ever dealt with anything like that in the music world? Um, maybe in like when you're scoring something or anything, has that ever come your way? All the time. People will like say, I like all of this that you gave me, but I think we're going to go in a different direction. Or like, can you send a whole new batch or a whole new reimagining? Like the worst work like that is commercial work for hires. The worst. No shade if you're in like commercials and like advertising, marketing, but some of the worst people to work with don't know what they want. Like, (laughs) and And they can't even describe what they want. Right. (laughs) Right. And I've been through multiple situations where I give them exactly to the letter what they say they want, but because the musical terms or whatever, I'm literally trying to become like a, a translator. You know, I have to translate it because I'm like, I don't know what you mean by like whatever adjective you use. And so I think that's the hardest where like you'll give them something and then they want to pivot all the way over here. And then you got to make sure it's funny. You got to make sure you still get your money somehow, you know, you know that like that part is non-negotiable, but people drag their feet. And so it's like, that happens all the time. It usually, if it happens in music, what I've noticed is that instead of making you do something completely different, steam gets lost. And then the project almost gets dead in the water or that like specific production or something it'll just be like oh it wasn't cool so it it, you know it wasn't looking for so it will just put that right there so people don't necessarily make you go through the steps again but it'll kind of be just like the energy's out of it like the balloon is deflated and then you might get paid for that but then you don't land in the Mm -hmm. final product exactly Mm -hmm. okay that sucks yeah so another i think another thing in the music game that I experienced when I was making beats that might be kind of a scope creep is when I would give a beat CD or something to some rappers or singers and they'd be like, Oh, I want this one. Don't give this beat to anybody else. And then it never comes out. Has that ever happened to you? Every (laughs) day. Every day. (laughs) I gave out a couple beats last week and then I got another contact and I was like, I'm going to send half these beats again because I immediately tell them, if you like any of these, let me know. If you want to use any of these, let me know. And even when they let me know, until it's actually started to be recorded to and worked on, you know, yeah, it's up for grabs. And even then, some people are more cutthroat. Like, until it comes out, it's up for grabs, you know, which I feel that. I'm not mad at any of that, you know, because as a producer, like, that's the only way you get paid. A lot of times you're giving a backdrop for people to, like, then imagine and exercise their creativity and do whatever they're going to do, you know, and some people have less follow through than others or some people are really not serious. They're they're literally asking everyone for beats and stringing you on. So I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm asking everyone if they want the beats and whoever actually does it, that's the one. So your rule now is it's not yours until you start recording to it. Yeah. It's not yours till we have a song and we're going to put it out. So even if you start recording to it, but once again, it's dead in the water, 
And what I've learned too, and I've gotten better at over the years is communicating that. Because I used to not communicate it and then you don't create a lot of good energy around. It's like passive aggressive, not even passive aggressive, just like, uh, like, oh, it's all right, but not really telling the person. Now I'm like, okay, I like this. I'm interested in possibly using it for my project. Or if you want this, you can take it. Just to like put some boundaries on it so that people aren't just sitting here like, does he not like me as a person? Or I'm wondering like, did they take the beat and do something else with like just a lot of unknowns trying to like communicate through that it's very important to step up and communicate that i i think we're similar in a lot of ways kind of somewhat introverted you know Mm -hmm. like trying to be easy to work with you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and make the process smooth but there is times where you kind of just gotta like put your foot down and, and get some real answers you know what i mean to move forward right um word okay for sure to round it out here we're gonna end it with some more rapid fire questions my first question is, what does the next five years look like for Trackademics? Whew, the next five years looks really interesting. So I started a company with my homie, Ben Frost, and we did basically this web radio station called All They Play that was in the Bay Area. Like, it stopped being supported by Youth Radio, the nonprofit it was in. So we decided to bring it back and evolve it. So we're working on launching that this year. So... Definitely looking to create a platform for more DJs and musicians over the next five years. If I had to say, it would be, uh, you know, split the difference between like a tiny desk and boiler room. So you're going to have video in there too? Yeah, it's it's fully video with um, some augmented video. It looked really dope. Oh, wow. Dope, dope, dope. Can you talk a little bit about youth radio and like some things that spawned out of that? Because it provided a lot for kind of the next generation that came out of the Bay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Youth Radio should have been in, like, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours, where they talk about, like, you two 10,000 hours to perfect your craft. Because, like, you know, aside from, like, me being there, like, just on the music side, I taught Kuya Beats and I Am Sue. 108K was their direct teacher, you know. Rayana J came out of there, like, Roach Gigs, Tia No More. Like, it's a ton of people who were in youth radio. There's a lot of them. Shrugs. The whole environment of just like, oh, we're just listening to music, making beats and, you know, media literacy, all that stuff. Like, it was like an incubator, you know? And I think it's super important. And not even just music in me. It's like a lot of folks are in traditional media too. Alex Savage, who's on Fox, KTVU here, he was an anchor. He was from youth radio. He was one of my peer teachers. So a a lot of folks. Yeah. That's dope, man. Yeah, I only went to the office one time, and that was when we interviewed Too Short. It was at the the office, and that was dope. When I was living in San Francisco, I stayed on that side of the bridge a lot, and I wish I would have ventured off to Oakland more. Like, really, it was just to interview artists, and I would be right back over. But now it seems like you got to be in Oakland if you're doing anything music-related. You know what I mean? It used to be the opposite for us. We used to be on the other side of the bridge because that's where everything was happening. Yeah, Yeah. things changed. Uh, Okay, next question. If you could say anything to the young you, what would it be? Loosen up. Like, you don't know everything and listen to everybody else's ideas and don't hold things so tight. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're talented. You can just make something else and keep keep going let it flow yeah great great feedback so for the music game ai do you fear it or do you use it i use it but it's no stopping any of it it's no stopping any of it i do think we need regulation around it because you know things can get out of hand but specifically for music i already know like 
if I'm scoring music or doing scores for TV, like that's gone. It's for people who don't value a human doing certain things, they'll take the diminished version. And in some instances, it won't even be diminished. Like if you watch Law and Order and they have like these ominous tones in the background that isn't really music, AI can do that quickly. So I utilize it in different ways, you know, I mean, not just music, like just like how everyone else is and prompting and all the other stuff. I think it's going to yield some very dope stuff, just like how, you know, when Serato came out, Scratch Live came out, like it allows you to do more. Like I play the saxophone and I'm like, oh, but there's I forget what the software is, but you can like say, okay, I I know how to play this instrument, but like let's switch into like a flute or something like switch it into a trumpet. There's so many things like, you know. You got to use the technology. Do you see yourself ever paying for an AI Snoop Dogg verse or something like that? Because I feel like that might be the future of AI as well. Could you see ever see yourself doing something like that? I mean, as a remixer, yeah. Not paying for it necessarily because I've never even licensed the acapellas to do. But as a, oh, I've had I've had plenty. So here's a real, re- real way for demos, like for mainstream artists, like... Mm. Just use their voice and be like, here, here's a song I made for you. I need you to do it, though. That's crazy. And then, like... That's crazy. I mean, I've heard it happen before, like... And, you know, demo's always rough anyway, but if I sang it all and then, like, put so-and-so's voice on it, like Brent Fia's voice or something, like, here, here's a Brent Fia song. It could be yours. (laughs) That's ill. Because then you can hear how their voice actually sounds on the track and customize it to their voice. Yeah, because so many people are, like, see it to believe it. Like, I can hear a demo singer and be like, oh, this would be a dope song. But some people can't, and they need to yeah. hear the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I'll take it back to your Tell Me When to Go remix. If you just listen to the instrumental, it doesn't sound like something E-40 would rhyme on. And exactly. it doesn't even sound like a hyphy track. But it went crazy in the middle of a mm-hmm. hyphy set. You know what I'm saying? Right. You, it's like you said, you have to see it to believe it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's why I made that one, because it still had the energy, but it wasn't like traditionally hyphy. And so it's like, you just need to lead the horse to water. Yeah, word, word, dope. Okay, my very last question is a segment called Drop a Gem on Them. Once again. If you got any advice, any kind of gem that you would drop on some young producers or anyone in the music field, what would it be? Just stay creative. Like, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. And stay curious because I feel like if I was coming up now and I have access to all this music and all these algorithms are throwing stuff at me, I would definitely make sure to like look outside of that for stuff that's falling in between the cracks and then just have fun with it and find some like-minded individuals to work with and do it. Right. That's what's up. All right. On that note, I think we'll wrap it up, man. Thank you so much, Trackademics. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And that was my interview with Trackademics. Man, such a good dude. Always a pleasure chatting with him. The memories, just a nostalgic time, such a unique moment in Bay Area history that I'm blessed to be a part of. And it's always cool to reminisce about that type of stuff. Shout out Trackademics. He's one that has been accomplished and has managed to navigate this ever-changing music industry. Super inspiring. Shout out to my guy. But before we end the show, we got to jump into some voicemails. Calling, calling, calling. I'm calling my brother. I'm calling. Answer your phone, I'm calling. Conversation. My words connect, my mind connects to your, and we connect. Answer. 
Hey, what's up, bro? Uh, it's Marvel calling from Vancouver. Um, I don't know. I haven't spoken to you for a minute, but I feel like I've known you forever. At least, I mean, over a decade, I've been uh, kind of like watching your journey, and it's super inspiring. Uh, and I'm super stoked I stumbled upon your podcast through the New York Giant episode, um, and it's been a super inspiring find. Um, I'm kind of diving into my passion for video editing um, as well lately. Uh, I mean, over the last couple of years and just approaching it with a kind of like a mixtape mentality for how things like fit together and have meaning and like there's just a storytelling aspect. Um, and it's starting to flourish into like opportunities coming my way. Uh, for example, like, uh, I mean, mutual homie we have, King Most just uh, reached out to me for a project just to create a real promoting uh, remix that he did and just like, I don't know, it's really, really came together naturally and he had good ideas and just kind of like, knew the eye I had for things and just wanted that to use as a promo tool for the remix. Anyways, it turned out really good. Um, I've been doing stuff for like BeatSource and DJ City uh, for their socials, um, as well as my own stuff. Uh, my wife's company just got me to do a corporate project. Um, so I don't know, things are just kind of coming together. So as I navigate this, I feel your podcast is a super motivating source. Um, so if you have any, like, I guess, insights just to organically grow my video editing journey i'd uh, love to hear your thoughts man looking forward to it love the show keep it up hey shout out my guy dj marvel out of vancouver canada quick memory about marvel so i first went to vancouver around 2011 mobbed out there with the homies roland ben ryan you know the squad and we had such a good time marvel Took us everywhere we wanted to go. He had the patience to take us sightseeing. Got us tree. And, you know, that was when weed was not legal yet. Took us shopping. And then the nightlife, he had it on lock. I think he still does. I don't know. I'm out of it. But from what I see on socials, he's still rocking out there in Vancouver. And to answer your question, Marvel, you just got to put in that work, man. You got to put in the work. You got to put in those hours. I do see the clips that are popping up on social. Uh, follow my man Marvel, DJ Marvel. That's D-J-M-A-R-V-E-L on socials. Man, the clips are looking great. He also has a brand. It's the Homie Depot. Put out some cool products. But yeah, with video editing, it's a forever evolving game. Just know that. Um, I mean, this is video production in general. You're always going to have to learn and evolve. You're always going to get better. Just put in the work. Even me to this day, I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for the years of me doing this. But, you know, we stay dedicated to, to learning newer tricks and getting better and faster. To this day, like, I'll look at edits I did a year ago and already think like, oh, I could do way better than that. So just know it, it is a journey. So just, you got to fall in love with that journey. And that's with any creative outlet you choose. You got to fall in love with the journey, not the goal. Man, that's just a life bar right there, okay? But man, make sure you guys hit up the voicemail. I need to get more V-mails. I'm so excited that we're actually getting some. But the number, once again, is 646-926-3885. You're going to get a book. Oh, Marvel, expect the book. Joe Conzo's 50 Years of Hip Hop. I've got about, I don't know, 15 more, I think. I'm going to give you an official count soon. But on that note... It's time to sign off. Until next week, my friends, thank you for listening to the Rel and Friends podcast. Peace.